So Holy Spirit, come, fill this place. Let your kingdom come and your will be done in this room, even as it is in heaven. And it's in your name we pray, amen. All right, all right. We have been working our way through the Gospel of John. We are in John chapter 15, which is quite an accomplishment, by the way. Um, This is uh, quite a task to go chapter and verse uh, through the text. And the fact is, we're going to miss the great majority of it, even as we go. So uh, we're going to spend two weeks in John chapter 15. We could spend two years, literally, in John chapter 15. Uh, So we're moving quickly, but hopefully um, able to highlight some really meaningful stuff along the way. Last week, we looked at the first eight verses. And as I've said, these are eight of the most significant verses ever penned by anyone at any point in history. Really significant. So all we could do really was highlight a few things that Jesus said and try to build on those. So um, the first of those three things, as I'll recap it quickly, Jesus said, if you remain in me, I will remain in you. If, Jesus says, if you are willing to walk with me day in and day out, I will never walk away from you. You and If you're willing to do this step by step, day by day, I will be with you every step along the way. The second statement that we highlighted is a promise that comes directly out of that. He said, if you remain in me, you're going to bear lots of fruit for the kingdom. And if you don't remain in me, you won't bear any fruit period. It's absolute. It's binary. It's black and white. It's one way or the other. If you walk with me daily, you're going to bear tons of fruit. If you don't, you won't bear any fruit whatsoever. He gave the illustration of a severed branch. Severed branches don't bear fruit at all, period. And then the third statement is really a repetition of that one with even more intensity. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot do a single thing of merit apart from the kindness and the mercy of God on display in our lives. And so this was the conclusion that I drew last week, and hopefully you went there with me. The conclusion is that remaining in him becomes the absolute priority, period. The most important thing for us to do today is to remain in him, period. The most important thing for us to do tomorrow is to remain in him, period, because all of the fruitfulness flows from that and that alone, because apart from him, we can do nothing. So if we walk with him, we can do anything. And so remaining in him becomes our absolute priority, period. That was last week. I don't know if I got the point across last week or not, but I sure tried real hard. And um, my daughter uh, at lunch was making fun of me. I was so proud of her when she did it. She uh, at lunch was saying, on, this is a week ago today, she was like, Daddy, you need to eat all your broccoli, period. Daddy, you need to bring me some salt, period, whatever it was. I was like, that's my girl. I'm so proud of you. All right, that was the first eight verses. We're going to pick up right where we left off. Uh, look at verses 9 to 17 today. And what's going to begin to happen is Jesus is going to paint a picture of what it looks like to actually remain in him. So we have this idea from last week. And he says, let me flesh that idea out a little bit. He has one big overarching idea and four ways that that works itself out. Here's the big overarching idea. Stay with me. Jesus said, I want you to relate to me the way that I relate to the heavenly father. I want you to relate to me the way that I relate to the heavenly father. I want my relationship with you, my kids, my disciples, my apprentices. I want our relationship to mirror the relationship that I have with the heavenly father, which is a, you can think about that all day long and not waste any time. That's a remarkable statement. So let's look at how it works, out, works itself out. The first one is just in this first verse, verse nine. Jesus says, I have loved you even as the father has loved me. Remain in my love. I, I've, I love you the way the father loves me. 
I want us to take a second and try at least, we won't do it, but at least try to get our heads around the intensity of that statement, the enormity of what Jesus just said. I love you the way the Father loves me. Think about it. God is love. That's how he defines himself. If you say, God, what are you? He would say, I am love. And he's Trinity. And for all of eternity, God has existed within Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And within that, an absolute, infinite, unbounded, unconditional, perfect, flawless love within the Trinity itself. Out of the Trinity itself, all of the universe was created. Everything you have thought of and even conceived of, everything you've not yet conceived of was created out of the sheer force of that love that exists within the Trinity. It is sustained today by that, really, if you think about it, the soul, source, and power of everything. That love, he said, not just any love, that love is the love that I have for my disciples. The love that I have for you. Can I... There's absolutely no way, I, no matter how infinite my vocabulary might be, and it certainly isn't, there's no way I could overstate the significance of that, the beauty of that, the power of that. I couldn't possibly be exaggerated. There is no upgrading from that, the love that you have from Jesus to you. It's the love of the Trinity. And so Jesus gives a very clear directive, remain in my love. He goes, I love you like that. You might want to anchor in that a little bit. You might want to settle into that idea for a while. He says, remain to me, that word remain, it means dwell, it means abide, it means set up shop, it means hunker down, it means live in this, breathe this, make your home in this love. Meditate on this love. Meditate on this love that is yours through Jesus. I know that we get a little bit queasy and, and maybe look a little side-eye when we start talking about meditation because I think people default to think that that has something to do with Eastern mysticism or that's what monks do or whatever the case may be. Listen, listen, listen. Um, meditation is a profoundly Christian idea and it has been the whole entire time. Somebody, I think somebody in the eighties said, if you meditate, that's new age. And we've been thrown off track ever since. Okay. Listen, it's so old age. It is not new age. It is thousands of years old age to meditate on the truth of scripture. And so we want to meditate on this idea. We want to sit in it and let it seep into our bones. And then imagine if you set aside, at the bare minimum, we set aside time to, to meditate on this idea. And then from there, you move out into the world consumed with and by that truth that the love of the Trinity that formed the world is yours through Jesus. How differently might you move out into the world? How differently might you move out into the world? All right, that's the first one. Here's the second one. It's in verse 10. <clears throat> when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey my father's commandments and remain in his love. So the big overarching idea is Jesus says, I want you to relate to me the way that I relate to the father. Now we've got two ways that works itself out. Number one, I love you the way the father loves me. And number two, I want you to obey me the way that I obey the father. Now we have our ideas about obedience, but look at this specific language, the way that I obey the father. How do you think Jesus obeys the Father. And we've got to lean into this for just a minute because the idea of obedience and submission and following commandments in our culture and in our society is so broken and twisted and sick and diseased. 
We've got to see the dramatic contrast of what we find happening within the Trinity. In our world, if you obey, if you submit, if you follow, well, that means probably someone is exercising or exerting control over you. You're being manipulated in some way. There's fear that's ultimately behind that, fear of punishment. If you're following, that essentially means you have admitted defeat. You have submitted that subservience, it's belittling, it's demeaning in order to follow the commands of another. And I want us to see that even though that's the world's lenses around obedience, that none of those words apply at all to how Jesus obeys the Father. Jesus obeyed the Father out of joy, out of love. It wasn't begrudging submission, it was joyful submission as an expression of unity and delight. In the kingdom of God, in God's economy, the rules, the rules are born out of love. They are born out of kindness. They are born out of service to the other. Service to the other. I'm saying the rules are gifts. And obedience to those rules is not fueled by fear or coercion or manipulation or any of that. They're fueled by gratitude and delight and unity. I'm going to read verse 10 again, and this time I'm going to read verse 11 as well. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey the Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. He says, as clearly as he possibly could, the rules are for our joy. I have told you these things so that you'll be overflowing with my joy. He says, my joy. What's his joy? It's the joy of submitting to the Father. And we get to enter into that same joy by obedient submission to the Son. This is not subservience. This is not belittling. He says, I have told you these things so that you will be overcome by joy. Not I've told you these things so that I can hold you under my restrictive thumb, so that if you mess up at any point along the way, I can furrow my brow and sling a lightning bolt and take you out because that's what religion's really about, like some people think it is. That's not what he says. I haven't, I haven't told you these things so that I can hold you under my thumb so that you can live in existential dread that you'll never be good enough and forever be manipulated by the fear that comes with that. No, I have told you these things so that you can overflow with joy. The rules are for our joy. The rules are for our joy. The rules are for our joy. Okay. Let's go to verses 12 to 15. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I've loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. There's a lot that's going on here. We're going to highlight just one aspect of it. Again, our premise as I review is that we're going to relate. He wants us to relate to him the way that he relates to the Father. And now we've seen three ways in which that works itself out. I love you the way the Father loves me. Obey me the way that I obey the Father. And number three, accept the fact that we are actually friends the way the Father and I are actually friends. I want you to relate to me the way that I relate to the Father. I relate to the Father as friend. I want you to relate to me as friend. 
here's a side note here. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna come over here to the side as I make a side point. I do it physically for some reason, but um, as a side, this is another sermon that I don't get to preach today. But you you get a little snippet of it. I want you to notice there's a couple qualifiers that Jesus puts in to define what genuine friendship is. There's openness and there's sacrifice. He said, you know that we're friends because I've told you everything. I told you everything the Father's told me. I'm not holding anything back from you. You know my secrets. There's openness and there's sacrifice. And here he alludes to his soon coming death where he will lay down his very life for the sake of his friends. And those, those are helpful lenses through which we might evaluate our own friendships and see whether or not they meet the criteria that Jesus gives us right here for what genuine friendship is. If you have friends that... Um, you know, you're willing to help out in a bind. You know, they call you and they want to borrow your truck or they need help moving or need you to come over and keep an eye on the kids or, 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 or whatever, and you're willing to help them out. You very likely refer to that person as your friend, as your buddy, and perhaps that's well and good. But Jesus says, if you're not also sharing secrets with that person, if you're not living openly as well with that person, then I'm not sure that constitutes friendship. Openness and sacrifice. Openness and sacrifice. All right, I'll come back over here because I'm done with the side point. Tell you a quick story. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm burdened by the reality as it seems to me, you know, through my lenses. I don't know how true it is, but it seems to me that some great majority of genuine heartfelt Christians simply do not relate to Jesus as friend. Maybe benevolent, benevolent overlord? Maybe. I mean, there could be a whole list, but, but friend, not so much. Um, a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago now, um, I went to get a haircut and I got a really, really bad haircut. Like it was so bad. And it, it was one of those things I didn't have my contacts in. I had my glasses. And so um, uh, the lady's cut my hair. I'm not paying a bit of attention. Uh, she gives me my glasses to put them on. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> this is really bad. And you're supposed to complain and ask them to fix it. But one, I don't like to complain. And two, I had no confidence they could fix it. And so I was like, thank you. Bye. I paid and I left. I put on a hat and I drove to another establishment to get my hair cut again. Back to back haircuts. I walked in. I looked. I made a knowing glance with a lady who was going to cut my hair next. I took my hat off and she said, oh no. And I said, yes, we have work to do. She said, yes, we do. Come have a seat. She was hysterical. She laughed out loud repeatedly. It was a hack job, y'all. It was so bad. It was, she asked me in all sincerity, was the woman who did this drunk when she cut your hair? And the truth is, I kind of didn't know. I thought, well, that could explain it, actually. I, I'm not, I hadn't thought about that, but that's, but that's a possibility. Maybe that explains it. And so there was a lot of work to be done. And by the time she had cut my hair and solved the mistakes that were there to the extent that they could be solved, um, I've now had two back-to-back -back haircuts, and about an hour before that, I had, by my standards, long and shaggy hair, and two haircuts later, I've got really short hair, which, whatever, nobody cares. Okay, but here's the thing. We're doing church online, and we record the services midweek, and the day before, I had preached the sermon for the online. It was recorded, and it was going to be on that weekend, um, but the next day, I was supposed to come back into the studio. I keep pointing to the studio. It's over there. I was supposed to go back to the studio to record an announcement about services opening, which means there's going to be one video with two segments, one of which I had long, shaggy hair, and the other one, I had really short hair. 
And so I'm in like problem solving mode. So I call Sam. Sam is our uh, communications pastor and he's just the best dude. And I called the Sam and I said, Hey man, uh, I got this haircut debacle and I got another haircut and you know, long story short, I've got really short hair and I'm going to have long hair in one part of the video and short hair in another part of the video. And how do we solve this problem? I'm calling you for help. And Sam did not help solve the problem at all because Sam was hysterical. The amount of joy, the glee that overcame him. He giggled like a schoolgirl. I've never seen him so happy. He laughed at my expense again and again, and there were people around, so he gathered them up, and they all laughed at my expense, and then we got off the phone, and he didn't help me at all. And that's what he should have done. Now, it occurs to me that it would have been, honest, it would have been so hurtful and disappointing to me if Sam didn't feel comfortable doing what he did in that moment, openly mocking me as he did in that moment. If he did the math in his mind and said, well, Aaron is the pastor and technically he's my boss and he has called me so that we might solve this problem. We need to work. He is call, This is a work call and I need to address it as such and therefore I don't get to openly make fun of him. Honestly, it would have been so hurtful to me if he thought because there's some existence of a hierarchy that means I cannot then relate to him as my friend. That would be hurtful. And yet, guys, I think we do this to the Lord all the time. It seems there's this disconnect, this breakdown, because of our twisted disease understanding of obedience and following the Lord and submission. There is this inherent breakdown that says, I cannot submit to someone and relate to them as friend at the same time. That seems off. It's not off. In fact, Jesus is very profoundly making that point as he talks about these things back to back. You're going to submit to me and relate to me as friends. And so I just want to say, if you can't imagine yourself laughing with Jesus, then there's something really beautiful about life with him that you're missing out on and that I believe he's inviting you back into today. Okay, enough of that. Two more verses. 16 and 17. I love these words. Jesus, the son of God, says this to his kids. You did not choose me. I chose you. That's really good. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. I remind you, we hit that point about him giving us whatever we ask for using his name. That was a couple of weeks ago, if you want to go find that. And verse 17, this is my command, love each other. Okay, so the premise is, I want you to relate to me the way that I relate to the Father. I want our relationship to mirror the relationship that I have with God the Father. And now we see four ways in which that works itself out. I love you the way the Father loves me. You are to obey me the way I obey the Father. I want you to accept the fact that we're actually friends the way the Father and I are actually friends. And fourthly, I want you to share a purpose with me the way the Father and I do. The Father and I are on a shared mission to renew the world with our love. We're on a shared mission to address the brokenness in this world with our profound love. And I want you and I to be on a shared mission the way the Father and I are on a shared mission. We are on a mission to renew all things, and I would like for you to join us 
in the renewal of all things. Um, I've been reading a, a grumpy German philosopher named uh, Martin Heidegard. And Heidegard's big idea is what's translated in English to uh, thrownness, like you throw a ball, thrownness. And it boils down to basically this. He says, um, your existence here in this time, in this place, is sheer happenstance. You were arbitrarily flung here by something else that was arbitrarily flung there. And you, who you are and where you are and how you are is completely arbitrarily, or arbitrary, and your life is therefore completely meaningless. Thrownness. Just been thrown here. The Bible teaches the absolute opposite. What the Bible insists, what Jesus insists on, is profoundly different than that. The opposite of thrownness. You have been placed here by God on a mission for God. And don't you doubt it. Peterson said something like this. I'm going to paraphrase. But he basically says, if you as a human being lack purpose in life, that does not mean that your life will become meaningless in a general sense, which might seem logical. I don't have a, a real purpose. I don't have a real meaning. And therefore, I'm sort of untethered. I feel directionless. I don't have a real focus. I can build my life around meaninglessness in a general sense. He said, that's not what happens when you lack purpose. He says, when you lack purpose, your life will be marked and characterized by unbearable suffering. That's what happens when you live without purpose, when you live without meaning, because you have been designed by God for purpose, for meaning. You were not arbitrarily flung here by something. You were placed here by God's design as Esther was for such a time as this. Psalm 139, crafted, shaped, formed in your mother's womb. Ephesians 2, you are our God's craftsmanship, his poetry, to do works that have been set aside for you. You're not arbitrarily flung into this time and place. You are strategically placed into right here, right now, to be you with your story and your backstory and your inclinations and your wiring, uniquely placed here by God to do great things. As he says in this text, to bear fruit that lasts. And he says, the words of Jesus from this text, you have been chosen, you have been appointed. You have been chosen, you have been appointed. I understand there's a tremendous amount of upheaval in the world right now. I understand you might be inclined to think that you're just along for the ride. Maybe I can just hold on and ride this thing out. And God says, no, you have been chosen and appointed to effect real change into this reality into which you have been strategically placed. You have a mission. Purposelessness does mean it equates directly to unbearable suffering. But on the other hand, our Lord and Savior Jesus has said, we're on a shared mission. We are the best of friends. 
It is anchored in love and obedience and purpose. And we're doing it together. That's the opposite of thrownness. That's the opposite of unbearable suffering. And then he says how, in verse 17, we're actually supposed to work this out. And do not dismiss this because of its simplicity. Here's how you do it. Love each other. Love each other. Yeah, preacher, I know. No, 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 no. Love each other. I'm not sure we've been great at that for the last 12 months or so. Love each other. These first 17 verses, as I've said, some of the greatest words ever penned in all of human history, they really boil down to this. Remain in him and love each other. And that's it. That's it. And it's kind of everything. It's kind of everything. What is this great purpose you speak of, Aaron? Remain in him and love each other. And it's kind of everything. And you might push back on that and say, okay, more hyperbole from a preacher. There's so much more than that, Aaron. That's way too reductive, Aaron. There's so much more. Yes, there is so much more than that, but there's nothing, there's nothing good that doesn't flow directly out of that. Remain in him and love each other. It is easy to be just completely mired in the complexity of our society and the overwhelming complex nature of the issues that we're facing. A, a pandemic, obviously, I mean, to state the obvious, that has threatened and upended virtually everything, social unrest, injustice on a scale that's hard to comprehend, tension between races, between races, It was a bad election year, guys. It was bad. I'm not talking about the results. I, I, I'm, it was a bad election year. I am stunned by the amount of toxicity in the air. I am, and I know I keep bringing it up, but it's where my heart is. I am horrified by the amount of polarization between camps as I see what appears to me to be millions and millions of Christians on both sides of the aisle discovering the capacity to hate other people by the millions. All while we have one simple directive, remain in me and love each other. I am admittedly discouraged by the putrid cesspool that is social media. I fret for what it does to our souls. And at the same time, I will admit that I have been discouraged because there are a lot of Christians in this country. We have a profound voice. And we have the capacity to change the nature of the dialogue and the discourse. To change the air that is breathed. We have that. And I'm... I'm not sure we've nailed it up to this point. And I think that we might think that because of the complex nature of, I can't even, I can't even articulate what the problems are, much less solve them. <laughs> I'm, I don't, I'm not the solutions guy. 
And we might think, well, with problems that are that deeply ingrained, that are so seemingly intractable, with complexity that's more than we can fathom, the solution must be a profoundly complex one, and the opposite is true. The solution is a profoundly simple one. For the millions and millions of Christ followers in this country to remain in him and love each other. The answer to the complexity is not more complexity, it's simplicity. It's simplicity. And we're still in the midst of all of it. We're still swimming in the seas of complexity and distrust and fear. And we've got the card to play. It's our only card to love each other. This is the card that we play. We've still got it. Now, uh, Dave, you can come on back up. Wrapping up by now, behind schedule. I am. I tell you what, let's just go ahead and move toward uh, Selah. Selah is something we do every week, a couple of minutes. It's a sacred pause, a couple minutes to be still, to welcome the presence of the Lord, to invite him to speak to us. And I want to give you sort of a more specific challenge in this moment and I'm not trying to turn the screws on anybody. Um, and this isn't like a thus saith the Lord moment or anything too. I'm just kind of doing the math, which is a lot of you guys were here last week. And last week I sort of jumped up and down about how the thing that matters the most, period, is that we would remain in him. And I'm betting most of you heard that and most of you agreed. Yeah, amen. Absolutely. That should be my number one priority every day of the week. And so now I would say it's been seven days. Has that been your number one priority for the last week? I'm not trying to poke a sore spot. What I'm trying to highlight is the fact that we can make a mental ascent to a value and it means nothing. Knowing better and doing better are two entirely different things. And so I want to ask you, if you indeed agree that remaining in Him is our number one priority, then how do you go about living that out today, tomorrow, the next who can you tell to hold you accountable? Who will challenge you along the way? How public can you make it? How many people can you be honest and forthright with it about? What steps might you take? What priorities might you realign? Because I think that's the priority and I think you probably agree. And I think there is a desperate, a desperate need in this town and beyond for us to remain in him and live that priority out. Because loving each other, frankly, is really, really hard to do. We only can do it if we remain in him. It's his love. It's the love that exists between father and son, the ultimate love of the universe that created the whole thing and sustains the whole thing. That's his love, not ours. Only by remaining in his love, the first verse that we looked at, are we gonna be able to love each other, the last verse we looked at. So I want to put that challenge in front of you. Maybe you can spend some time now in prayer, offering that to the Lord and reflecting about how we bring it to bear in the coming days. I'll get us started in that prayer and we'll have some time of stillness as well. Holy Spirit, we love you. King Jesus, 
we are yours and you are ours and it is good to be yours. Father, please forgive us if we have been trapped in the lie that there's just so much going on and so much upheaval and so much complexity that we just hunker down and hold on. And we've lost sight of the fact possibly that we have been placed here, chosen and appointed to join you in the renewal of all things. Or would you call us, if need be, call us once again to engage in this world. We have tremendous power because we have access to your love. There is no greater force of power. We are not hopeless and helpless in this world. But we must remain in you to walk in that beauty and in that transforming power. <laughs>